This is episode number 21, Battles of Life, with Karen McHugh. Welcome. My name is Ola Glohi, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a brief announcement regarding our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to connect with hundreds of other people who are going through a similar journey that you are? Well, this is your chance. Come join us for a day of networking, insightful speakers, and workshops that will help you improve your current lifestyle and well-being. For more information, go to overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Now, let's get back to our guest. 5%. That was her chance of survival. A hard thought for most, if not all of us, to swallow. What would you do if you were told you had a 5% chance at life? Would you be satisfied with the person you have become the lessons you have passed on to others, and the amount of time you have spent with those you love. Without further ado, please welcome Karen McHugh. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't mind, I'd like to start off this episode by having you share a little bit about who you are and the reasons why you got adopted, and we'll move into some of the other topics from there born and my biological mother, you know, relinquished me and she, I believe she got sent away. I don't know the actual story, but her address on my birth certificate was uh, a home for unwed mothers. And I don't believe anybody in her family even knows about me at all. She never told my birth father. He didn't know I existed till last summer. So, um, I think so. Then I went into foster care for a few months. I have no idea who took care of me for those mm -hmm. two months. Um, and that's kind of strange to me um, that to not know who basically all you are is held Was when a you're an parental infant. figure for you. Yeah. Right. And you to not even know who they are. So then you're with that. So you're in your mother's womb for nine months. Then you're separated. That's the trauma. Then you go with another person. You get used to them. You bond with them for a couple months. Then you're separated from that person, you know, and it's like, so then I'm with my parents, my adoptive parents, and that's all great, but I've always been anxious since I was a kid. And I think you, you start to develop your personality as an infant. It's like, you think like, what's wrong with me? What's, where am I going now? Like what's happening to me now? Like, and it, that's why that does make sense to me. Um, because after being in that coma, mm -hmm. when I w was coming out of that, they, you know, I couldn't talk. I was on a ventilator. I couldn't communicate with people. I couldn't write. Um, it was like being a prisoner of my own body. And I had no idea. And I wasn't remembering things. I mean, I didn't even remember having my son. I was completely under general anesthesia. I, I mean, I completely didn't even remember being pregnant. I, I was so drugged up. And, you know, being in a coma is, is like, <laughs> I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's it's like I woke up and I had no sense of time um, and I was just in and out of it. And they had, I would keep forgetting. They'd have to tell me things over again. And I was just so confused. And and you're at everybody else's mercy. And that's that feeling of no control. And it's like, what's going to happen to me now? Where am I going now? What mm -hmm. room are they taking me to now? And I think that triggered a lot of those feelings probably from what happened to me, that trauma in infancy, not to mention being separated from my son, like having that same exact experience again, you know, mm. like as much as my son was separated from me, I was separated from him, you know, and that was mm -hmm. very, and then having to watch other people care for him and having to, I, I really, um, 
the first time they brought him to the hospital, I was still on the ventilator. I could barely move. And it was awful. It was like probably one of the worst days, if not the worst day of my life, um, which was supposed to be, you know, the best day of my life. I could barely hold him. He screamed the whole time like he was afraid of me. And the one nurse that I'm still friendly with that took care of me said that she's like, I knew you were like completely like disassociated. Like you had a flat affect. Like I just showed mm. no emotion towards him. I, I, I can remember thinking, well, like, what am I supposed to do now? Like I can't, it just kind of shut off like that mothering instinct and I, and it hurt. I was so upset. I felt robbed. I didn't want to deal with it. I, I was, had such a long road ahead of me for a physical recovery that I couldn't even begin to process the emotional side. So mm. I just didn't. And it's a shame because I missed out on my son's, like, I, I don't feel like I was like very aware of him in that first year of his life after I did come home. Mm -hmm. It was I, just too hard. Have you been able to have a conversation with your son about that and maybe try and figure out if he is going through similar so things recently, that you went through? Just recently, because I kind of didn't really make that correlation until I listened to that podcast. Um, I thought it, the thought had crossed my mind that it was somewhat traumatic for him, but never like, really like pinpointing it to the actual birth separation, like basically the same thing that happened to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, carried him for nine months. He had a traumatic birth. I, his, he was born in an operating room. I was already intubated in a drug induced coma. You know, they, so I wasn't awake. I didn't hold him. His father, he was put in isolation and, um, so his, he wasn't even allowed to be held because he was quarantined mm. because they were, they didn't have the test results from him having H1N1. Um, so he was in a room with no windows, you know, in an isolate. So he had a traumatic birth. Not, he did not have a normal birth like other children experience where they're held and there's contact that that didn't happen for him. And then, you know, then I was in a different hospital. He, I got airlifted to Penn. He was in the hospital in South Jersey so his father wasn't there really taking care of him because he was at the hospital with me. Um, my ex-husband, his niece, who's just, uh, you know, a few years younger than him, was actually a pediatric nurse. Mm -hmm. And she was single. She moved into our home and took care of my son. So then she bonded with him. And then after I came home, like three months later, she moved out. And, you know, then that was another transition for my son. Um so it's, it's really hard for all of us that were involved. I think it's interesting too. well, this whole this entire theme of transitions that you've mentioned a couple times. And what I'm curious to know is that so if I recall correctly, in your submission, you mentioned how whenever you were asked to describe yourself, adoptee wasn't the first thing that come to your, that came to your no. mind. Nope. Why was that? I think because, you know, my parents, but now, as Leslie said, back then, when parents took babies home that they adopted, it was like, you take them home, you tell as few people as possible. And that wasn't necessarily the case for my parents. But my, so my, the, our stories are very similar until, so I have a sibling that is also adopted, but not genetically related. But then my parents finally got pregnant. So I have another sibling that is my parents' natural-born child. Mm. So I really think that after that, and I do remember, because I was about five, five or six when my mother had my youngest brother, and I remember asking, because probably my earliest memory is going to pick up my other brother, the middle brother mm -hmm. from the adopted adoption home. Mm -hmm. So when they had to explain, you know, his birth to me is um, – you know, like they, I can remember, and I was so young, my mom saying, oh, well, you were different. Like, we chose you. Like, I mean, what are you supposed to say to a five-year-old? But nobody, I can remember that. Like, I, you don't want to hear, like, I'm different. Mm -hmm. I'm different. Like, I didn't know what that meant. And nobody ever talked about it. Nobody ever made me feel different. I loved my family. 
loved my cousins. It was never an issue. So um, that's why I never thought of it. And my, certainly ne neither of my siblings, the one that is adopted, we never even talked about it. Uh, we still don't talk about it. It's just strange. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very, everybody processes things differently. You know, everybody's story is different. And it's been hard, I'll be honest, like with um, dealing with, you know, meet, reckon, reuniting with uh, my birth father's side because I have other siblings on that side that I'm, you know, building relationships with. And it's really hard. It's because I feel like it's changed relationships a little bit with my siblings. Mm -hmm. um, and they're boys, too. I mean, no offense, but. <laughs> It's the way I talk about, I'm a lot more open. Um, each person, like you said before, will process it differently too. And that's right. That's a big role. That's interesting that you say that. So one of the things I'm, I want to know, I would like to know is, you know, when you mentioned the fact that um, now it's harder to talk about it, I'm assuming it's because back then, I guess things, you know, seemed so normal. Yeah. When they did, when they brought up the fact that that you were different, instead of saying you know you were adopted or yeah. telling you the history of how you got adopted and things like that. Well, what... my parents. Well, I have to just for that. My parents didn't. They didn't hide it. I mm -hmm. mean, my dad and my mom, they put together. We each, my brother and I, that are adopted, each have books that my parents had bound with every piece of paper that was a part of our adoption process you know, from the, from Jump Street, like every place adoption agency they even interviewed with before the Children's Home Society, which is where I came from. Um, so they documented all that and gave all that to us. So it's not like, it wasn't like that they hid it. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, I don't think they wanted us to feel different. I don't think my, like my mother didn't mean anything by saying, oh, you, you were, I think she just meant like you were born differently. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't because I don't know how you're supposed to explain that to a five year old, really. But I don't think they really had any counseling in that mm -hmm. back then. Um, it's just so different now. Like, I think they sent children home with people and babies and they didn't give them any kind of like guidance as to how you should um, talk to your adopted child about those kinds of things, hmm. you know, Um and the other odd thing for me is that I happen to grow up with a lot of other adopted kids in my neighborhood. It's really strange. I don't know how that happened. My parents have other friends that have adopted kids. Um, I have two cousins that are adopted. Um, but all of those people are international adoptees. So, mm -hmm. so I knew what adoption was. So it never felt like, I never felt like, I don't know. It was just hard for me to process because they all looked different from their families. Mm. You know, a lot of them were Asian, um, but I didn't necessarily. So that was hard because, like, when you look completely different from your family, especially a different ethnicity, people know and you don't have to, they, they don't even ask questions. You don't have questions. to explain, exactly. Right. But it turns into like a whole big thing. It's hard. I, that's what I didn't want my son to face. Like when you're doing school projects and, you know, things like that. Or And exactly as Leslie said, on medical forms, when they ask all these questions. Like they, it, it is so frustrating because with my medical history, all the specialists I go to, I have to fill out these forms every single time they make you update them. And it's just like N.A., N.A., N.A. Like they should just make it a box at yep. the beginning like your ethnicity so that they can just spare you all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just it's it just gets annoying, to, in my personal opinion, because when, then pe people ask questions. and. Absolutely. When did you first realize that the fact that you had to start mentioning the fact you were, you were adopted? So as you know, it may bring some additional things because I. I've started doing this, I guess, recently. I know that in the past when I would go to some doctor's appointments, well, the times that when I went with my mom when I was younger, she would explain the fact that, you know, I came here at 12 years old from a different country. 
Um, So she was very cautious about those things. But I know that when I started to go on my own, there were times when I failed to mention that because um, I'm not sure actually of the exact reasoning, probably because of the fact that it wasn't asked. And I was constantly asked all these other questions. And then by the time you answered those and you go through the appointment, which usually is 10 to 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, you're just not given that opportunity. So I'm curious to know in your mind, when did that click? Probably when I was like around 10 or 12, like you said, like when I started having like sports physicals or, you know, things like that. Because I don't think I ever paid attention before then. Mm-hmm. But for like school, when you would go every year, like and have your physicals, and they asked the questions, or um, especially when I was pregnant with my son, because they test for everything, and um, like hearing law, they want to know everything in your family's history, and I'm like, well, I don't know anything, you know. That's when it. That's when I really noticed it, like immensely, like how much they ask and it would save you a whole lot of trouble if they if they just had that as a box on there because mm-hmm. um, they go through the whole it's really just a waste of time right exactly <laughs> you know? well it's part of your 10 minute checkup so <laughs> right but things will move along a lot more quickly if you know but I do notice um, I think I also started thinking about that more when I was old enough to, I really have always paid attention to like how people look or things that run in people's families, like how my brother, youngest brother looks like certain family members. Um, but see, they were always like the complete opposite. Oh, like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't even tell, like, I felt like they overcompensated to make me feel better or me and my brother feel better. Hmm. Like we look alike, but and doing those projects in school where you're talking about your heritage and it's like, well, I'm not really those things though. You know, I mean, that's, that's, and, and not knowing what half of myself was because they give the non identifying like generic information. So I knew what my biological mother was very general things. Um, but no, like having to accept that I might not ever know like a whole half of me, that kind of, that really started to bother me. It it bothered me. It didn't bother me until I was an adult when I was, had my son and probably not until he got older to tell you the truth. I, I could have died when I got sick. I mean, they gave me a 5% chance of surviving that. Mm -hmm. And I had no regrets about not reuniting with my birth parent or anything like that. Like when I came out of that coma, it wasn't until my son you know, had gotten older in the last few years, like where he's old enough to ask questions that I felt like I owed it to be able to try to answer them for him. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So you were given a 5% chance to live while mm-hmm. you were in the coma. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. And what was it like afterwards when you woke up and you, you figured that part out? Um, was it, were, it you was in, like, were you in shock? Like, I would, was... Yeah, I think I was in shock. Um, I was angry, of course. I felt like I got robbed of, um, you know, having that birth experience. I felt like I got robbed of having that bond that I didn't ever have with my biological parent, my, my biological mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was stolen from me. So that really, that's been a hard thing to accept. And I was told not to have children after that, after I got sick like that, because I have a lot of vascular issues now. I had a lot of respiratory issues and they just said it would not be wise to do, to ever become pregnant again. And, and it bothered me that I felt like that was stolen from me. Like I was just, I was angry about that for a long time. And I, I just think I didn't deal with it. Um, I really didn't start to deal with the emotional side of it till like his first birthday. I kind of just really focused on getting back physically because mm-hmm. I was in extensive rehab for months. I mean, I had to have occupational therapy. I had to have um, physical therapy, um, you name it. So, I mean, I had speech therapy. So it, it took, I just had to learn how to be normal again because mm-hmm. I didn't even know if I was ever going to be off of oxygen. I, I didn't know what the future held for me and they didn't know. 
because they had never seen somebody that sick recover from the, the, I was on two forms of life support and they had never seen somebody when adults are on this ECMO machine, it's like a heart lung bypass machine. There's like a 50% mortality rate and people don't typically, yeah, they don't come off of that. So I, at one point I held the record at Penn for being on it the longest. I mean, they've come a long way in, you know, nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's more common for people to be on it. I actually had a friend that had a lung transplant last year and after she had her son and ended up on ECMO, the same hospital, and she survived. So, um, as I said, they've, they've really come a long way. Um, but I kind of, so they didn't, they weren't able to tell me what to expect as far as recovery. Mm-hmm. It was basically like a miracle I was alive. So... Sounds like they a didn't. lot of it was mental too. So I bet if they oh, if yeah. they did tell you some of the, you know, side effects or things you may experience that might psych you out even more, and then right. even cause even more of a, I guess you could say a crisis on your end where you would be constantly questioning yourself, you know, like is this happening because of that or is this happening because of that? How do I right. deal with it? How do I do these things? Oh, and I did go through that a period of that for a, quite a long time where. I didn't know what was normal and they couldn't tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just like the whole thing with them putting me on that ECMO machine was like a last ditch effort to save my life because I had cardiac arrested after I got transferred to Penn um, the day after. And they actually had to do that procedure bedside in the ICU because it, it was an emergent procedure. And, um, so they did it like a blind stick in my femoral artery. Mm-hmm. And that's why I had, I ended up having to have a bypass because it, it saved my life, but it obliterated my femoral artery. So, um, mm. so it was like just one thing after another. Um, and then when they did my trach, they had to take me off the ECMO. And, um, when they did the perform the tracheotomy, my lungs collapsed and I had to go be put back on ECMO. So that was like unheard of at the time. Hmm. So they really didn't think that things were <laughs> going to turn out. Well. Work out. Yeah. That makes so they sense. didn't know, they didn't, they didn't really know what to expect at all. Um, they couldn't tell my family. They couldn't, as far as my recovery went, mm-hmm. they thought I was going to be in rehab a lot longer than I was. And I, and I mean, they're kind of astonished because, and now, for all intents and purposes, I'm pretty healthy. I've run a full marathon. I've done triathlons um, ever since going through all that. So I really overcame, you know, all those um, hardships. Mm-hmm. But that, I unfortunately, I did not focus on the emotional recovery, mm. you know. And that, and that, you know, led to a lot of, um, you know, problems at home and and. and I think nobody knew how to, I think I was experiencing a lot of things that were triggered from being adoption, from that being adopted, from that trauma. And, but I didn't know that at the time, but now it all makes sense. Based on your experience, where does accept acceptance come from? Like how, how does one accept him or herself if they're in a similar situation that you are or you were I'm I'm figuring that out still and working on that <laughs> but with the way I'm trying to I've read an article about that and it's um, I think it was in psychology today and it, and it was that the acceptance and taking responsibility is that are the keys to having peace of mind and I think in order to do that what I've had to do in my own life is kind of you know, as you said, how you do, like you have to compartmentalize things and put them into like little boxes and, and accept things for the way they are and for the way they aren't. And mm-hmm. just not in what I'm trying to work on is just accepting things for what they are rather than saying, oh, I have to accept that, that, um, you know, I'm not in a relationship because, or I'm not, I don't have this job because like, instead of having a reason for it, it just is or isn't and, mm. and trying to look at it that way for what they actually are and that, you know, not attaching anything to it and that I have control. I think if I do that 
and just try to accept things that this is the way it is. I, and I kind of did that when I was in my physical recovery. It was like, okay, I, I may not be able to walk right now, but I can still use my hands or I can still, it's like kind of like taking an evaluation and of all the things that you still are able to do, mm-hmm. even though things may not be a certain way you want them to. And then that way you like reestablish that control. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with the emotional stuff. Um, because I think I've always come back to like that self-worth thing. And a lot, I've listened into these podcasts. It breaks my heart that it's such a um, strong pattern of people feeling shame mm-hmm. or, you know, having such a lack of self-worth. And I've experienced all of that. And I don't know why I, I felt that way my whole life. And I don't, there's really not a reason for it. It's like you have to over excel and overachieve. And you, and I only, I put the pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that feeling like you're not good enough because you were abandoned in a sense, you know? Yeah. And I, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think what does end up happen for, you know, honestly, it's not even for those that have been adopted. I, I want to say it's for a lot of the people that I know is that when you come to that point where you no longer feel worthy, what you start doing is just like you said, you start to excel. So that way mm-hmm. your norm changes because in the past, before you excelled, you know, your norm was, was that being when you felt unworthy, when things didn't work out, when you were right. constantly doubting and questioning things. But if you almost like if you take it to the next step, and you try and excel in some of those areas, then that becomes the difficulty. But the, I guess you could say the mastery or the skills you've gained through it, that becomes your norm. So it's harder to fall back and um, look at it as far as, okay, I've accomplished all these things, but they're not worth anything. Right. That's exactly it. I think when Mm -hmm. you set other goals for yourself to like overachieve at things or, you know, prove your self worth, Mm -hmm. like prove your value, it's like you're, it's a way of displacing that energy on the things that you really do need to accept, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, because it's just too hard. And I don't, I don't know why that is. I think because it, you actually just, it's a belief about yourself that's formed from when you're an infant, when you go through like a trauma like that. And I never understood that until I literally relived it again when I had my son and seeing him go through it. Because to be honest, my son is eight and a half and he's, I've noticed with him lately, like if we were late to pick him up once, his new thing that he fixates on is what if somebody I, I, what if somebody forgets to get me and then I'm all by myself and nobody comes for me? And what, what if nobody, he says that all the time. And it's like, I guess in that moment, like he felt abandoned. And mm. I wondered, I wonder like, is that a triggering like a physical response, like this anxiety that he felt as an infant? Um, and I wonder if that's what happened to me because I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And it used, but it, I could never explain it. That's the thing, like that feeling. And, and a child's not able to explain why, like my son, <laughs> it's, it's not logical. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so, it has to be a physical response. It's like the only thing that makes sense, like data that's stored in like your nervous system. It's, it's really the only thing that makes sense. So I really, something that even as an adoptee, I totally didn't buy into when I first heard about it. 10 years ago, um, it makes total sense to me now, Hmm. I think. And, and, and that's one of the things that I do as a part of advocating. I feel like one of the issues is that I never felt entitled to my feelings as an adoptee. So I just didn't think about them. Just like after recovering from a critical illness, I had feelings and emotions that came out of that. And I felt like I wasn't entitled to those either because it always, it's, you're always told like, or we're taught, you have to be grateful. You have to be thankful. Mm -hmm. Like look where you could have ended up. You were lucky. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I can't tell you how many times that people have said that to me. Um, 
And that's why I don't talk about it. I have never talked about being adopted that much growing up because I really wasn't sure. You know, you know, you feel a certain way about it, but you're not sure what that is or what <laughs> yeah. it means. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then you have people telling you, well, you just have to be grateful. You just have to be thankful. And everybody said that to me when I had my son after losing that few months with him. And I was really grieving that loss and I needed to grieve it. But I'm allowed to be, I, I was grateful. I certainly was grateful. I'm certainly grateful for my parents that raised me. But I, it, I think adoptees that go, or anybody that goes through something like that, they need to be told or, or have a platform where it's like, it's okay to have those feelings. Like that's normal. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you need to grieve that because it is like a loss. It's part of who you are, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. You can't change that. And and that to me was always strange. It was like, I always kind of felt like, and I, you know, I was born in New Jersey. And so my birth certificate has my adopted parents' names on it. I never even knew what hospital I was born in until last year. And to me, it was always like, how do I even know that's even the day I was born? It's like erasing an identity that existed before I was legally adopted when I was over two months old. Interesting and, question. That to me is a very strange, it's, it's almost like saying to someone like, well, you didn't exist until now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that is like kind of a weird feeling and I don't know what it means. It's not like I'm sad about that or that it's just strange. And especially after having a child of my own. And then I, I missed people try to say those few first three months aren't significant. Well, they were significant to me. So they had to be significant to him. So it, that really made a lot of sense to me. That especially that podcast, uh, I, I um really identified with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think that people should be able to be entitled to know they're entitled to their feelings. Hmm. How did you find the courage to share your story at first? Because it seems like one of, one of the common things that I see within, honestly, a lot of the interviews and people that share their stories and other platforms is that moment when people finally realize that they have a voice, that their voice does matter, and it's almost like they overcome this huge barrier and then they start to share it. I think a lot yeah. of it does come from the fact that you know there's a community that already exists and that gives you the voice, but I, I wanna know like how, how did you do it? Like what moment clicked in your mind that said, okay, it's time, you know, I've lived in this type of life. This is the life I really want to live. Well, to be honest, I think that really, I, I mean, I went through a significant depression after my biological mother kind of like rejected me last year. And it's odd because you had reached out to me. I, I had been a member of these adoptee support groups on Facebook um, you know, like Instagram, all that through social media. Mm -hmm. And I kind of would just watch, read other people's posts. And I, I used to think like, oh gosh, like some of these people are so angry and so bitter. And I never really felt like I could I, um, share my feelings in that platform. But when you reached out to me and asked me to share my story and brought this um, organization to light and I was able to it, it made me realize like, oh, wow, like there's other people that are like me and do feel the same way mm -hmm. and that there's other people that care about this and that aren't going to judge me or tell me how to feel. It felt like a safe space. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily feel like some of those other groups are necessarily a safe space. I feel like the way you set this up and present people's stories make it like a safe place to, you know, kind of like talk about these different themes and ideas. Mm -hmm. Cause honestly I was scared. Um, you know, a lot of people have, like I said, we all come from very diverse, different backgrounds and I, I've, I had a decent life. I mean, there's some people that have had horrific things happen to them and, and they're not happy about being foster children or adopted. They, they did not have the type of life that I had had. And um, so it's kind of scary to open up and say, complain that you feel a certain way. You, you almost don't feel entitled to it. 
It's like, well, at least this didn't happen to me. So what do I have to complain about? I mean, in those groups, I kind of felt like that. Um, Like I had no right to really like have these feelings, but the feelings are really the same when you break it down Mm -hmm. and you get to the root of all the stories. I think when you have somebody picking these themes and topics out and, and putting together this like safe space for people to have these conversations and knowing that you're not going to be judged and that people that genuinely care and want to be educated about it are the ones reading this and following this movement. That's what really gave me the courage to allow me to express how I feel about it because I, I feel safe to do so. I don't think I ever felt like that before. I like So really I have to attribute that to you. You've, you've created this, so. Oh, thank you. Now, I, I love that you said that because one of the things that I actually received as advice prior to started Overcoming Odds was people used to tell me that, you know, it needs to start off as a like a closed Facebook group um, because that's, that's the only image that people had of safe. But mm-hmm. what I thought of, I thought of actually complete opposite. I didn't used to think like that. I didn't think that, okay, I, I, Facebook group, yes, sure, it, it does make it a little bit safe because it's, you know, it's closed. You get to control the type of people you invite. You get to control the dialogue and things like that. But what made more sense in my mind was to have a place where people can share. And the safe part about it is that if you decide to comment or if you decide to somehow engage with a particular story you're putting your name out there way more than you do in a closed Facebook group right so it's almost like you're forced to ask yourself a lot of questions in a setting like that you know like sure. is is this is this going to offend anyone am I actually adding value to them versus the right. other way that's that's the thing that I've noticed and you might have noticed as well is that people are able to comment and say the things um, that may hurt someone without really mm-hmm. thinking through a, through the whole process? Absolutely, and that's, that's where why it, I kind mm-hmm. uh, that's why with those Facebook groups and I, and I see it happen if in any kind of group, like just from our, our neighborhood page. I mean, people like Facebook shame. That's like a thing now. It's it's totally to me. It's like totally not a safe space because you hide behind a keyboard and and people are just so quick to like type something. But this, when you read these people's stories, I just Mm -hmm. feel like you're getting so much more of the the story and the information and the whole picture. Yep. And that's why it's so valuable. I mean, it's such a valuable tool because I I have to be honest at first, when you reached out to me, I thought, well, what is anybody going to want to hear? My story's not interesting at all. But then the only reason I really did it was because, well, I have these feelings, though, and maybe it opens up a dialogue because maybe there's someone else like me that has a similar background that feels the same way. And it makes them feel like, oh, okay, I'm normal for thinking this Mm -hmm. because this person feels that way, too. Yeah. You know, and that that's something I never had. Yeah. So because, like I said, my brother and I never really talked about it, I think, because we just. I think nobody wanted to address that like we were all different and we still kind of don't like this is our family. And I think that was our way of like protecting each other by not addressing it. Um, so that that's another thing I find from being adopted and how that's impacted me as a parent. Um, even just in general, I find I'm overprotective of people as far as like their roles in my life mm. um, and why they made the choices that they made. And so much so that I feel like I, I don't want to step on anybody else's toes and I put that before myself. Hmm. So I, I feel like I didn't have a voice to be honest until I was asked because nobody really asked me how I felt. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I was asked people that don't, that aren't adopted, and don't understand, like even your own family members, they, they try to tell you, you know, how to feel and it's just not helpful. Yeah. You bring up a good point with um, honestly just being asked. What That's a huge thing that I've noticed. And this goes beyond adoption. This goes with any experience you can think of. Oftentimes, I think we kind of 
almost um, rely on the fact that you'll just come out and share your experience um, voluntarily, like without being asked. Right. And I think that's what is happening or has happened within um, adoption and foster care for so many years is that you have, uh, don't get me wrong, you have a lot of um, great organizations that are trying to do similar things to what we've done. But the, th the theme, the thing that I've noticed most between that is that they oftentimes depend on people just to reach out to them and say, right. okay, you know, here's my story and here's what I have to say about it. But what I've really noticed is that you have to, and this is what we've been doing, is that you, ha you have to take that first step as kind of a platform to start reaching out to people. Because there are so many people that actually don't um, do that on their own. You know, it's well, just, yeah. it, it, like you said, it, it really does take a lot of courage. And, and, I mean, it's a huge barrier for some people. It's something that may not have been talked about for their whole life. So what what would change in the instance where all of a sudden they're like, okay, here's this website. I'm just going to submit my story. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how we've been working on it is that, the worst that will happen is the person will say no. Right. Um, there have been other interesting responses that we've received, <laughs> but oh wow, really? well, well, you know, some people, um, some people have used the F word and things like that, and oh my gosh, um, and I, I'm sure it was probably because of the fact that they might have been going through something in their life, right. and so when we would reach out to them and we would ask them you know, to share their, their experience so we can help out others, it was probably just the wrong place, wrong time type of thing. Right. Um, I truly don't believe it's anything that we have built that triggered that. Um, but it's just like anything else in this world. Yeah. You, you always get that type of response. Um, but that's what I've noticed is that you have to be the one, if you're creating something like this, you have to take that initiative and you have to be the one asking the question first and making others feel comfortable with that community, with other people sharing their stories. Absolutely. Because I also think that there's just things like uh, certain topics in these podcasts that I've listened to that I've honestly never thought about. Mm -hmm. So if I were just asked to talk about it, talk about my story without being prompted with some topics and like themes um, I don't know that I would have made all these like revelations like that was a huge breakthrough for me to kind of tie that all together with, um, you know, seeing my son go through mm -hmm. this and reliving that. It, I didn't actually realize that, that I that I think I'm reliving that trauma like over and over again with these like transitions in my life. I think that's why. It's, I've really had a hard time dealing with my divorce, and I think it's because it's another – it triggered another feeling of abandonment. And it's very mm. hard to separate all those emotions from the feeling. And, I, and that's what I'm trying to recognize in therapy and all that, that it's just a feeling that my body's feeling. It doesn't change that – it doesn't change the fact that, um, you know, my husband ever loved me. Like, he, he did love me. It doesn't mean that never happened. It just – you know, when you have those feelings and it, it feels like it's the end of the world and that's mm -hmm. what anxiety is. And it makes you feel like you have no self-worth, like you're not lovable, like what's wrong with me. And I think I felt like that as a child sometimes too. Um, you know, like you, you do have that thought, like, well, why didn't, why, why didn't my parent want me? Um, I think that crosses every adoptee's mind. It's kind of a natural thought. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really like get stuck in that thought too much, but I do think it, it I think I had the thought because I had the physical feeling mm -hmm. and I didn't know what it was and well, I can just process oh. it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, how do you process that as a child? Um, you know, and it just translated into a lot of anxiety in it. And it used to be, um, anxiety about failure, uh, you know, and I think that's why I survived my illness because I don't like to lose. I don't, I'm not a quitter. 
I'm very determined. Um, and I think that's what kept me alive, honestly. And I think that's a part of my physical, you know, uh, chemistry also. So mm. I think that's honestly what kept me alive. But I, I feel like with certain changes and transitions in my life and how it's changed over the past, you know, 38 years, I think I've in a sense like relived some of those little traumas over and over again. But now I'm hoping that I've, since I've been able to realize that, that maybe I can have better handle on it and more control over it and realizing that it's just a physical feeling. Mm -hmm. doesn't change, you know, it doesn't change facts. Hmm. You mentioned a, you bring up a good point regarding divorce, and what I wanted to ask you was, and feel free to share as much of it as you would like. Um, mm -hmm. And you know you don't have to go into personal details if you don't want, but I think it's an interesting topic, especially in today's day and age, because there's so much pressure on those that are in a marriage. At least what I see from a lot of the friends that are married, that I have that almost like when you come to that situation when you should put an end to it that you, that they oftentimes don't and the reason why i guess is um one of the instances that i can recall they didn't end up divorcing was because of the fact that it was either the parents or someone else within that support group that continuously said you'll work it out you'll find mm -hmm. a way to do it. How how did you come to that decision when you finally said, okay, enough is enough? And for those that may be similar through, um, that are going through a similar journey, how can they do the same thing? Um, I think for me, things ultimately came to a head because my anxiety had just gotten so bad that... Um, I guess I was like starting to just be unapproachable. I mean, I, it was to the point where I just didn't even feel comfortable in my own skin in my own house. Like I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I, I felt it just wasn't a way to live. And I wasn't certainly not the best version of myself. Mm -hmm. um, I was just using a lot of ways to escape and, and, you know, especially through like fitness and things like that. It's very deceiving because it's it really is no different than the way other people escape through like drugs and alcohol you know it's just like a healthier version but that's what I was doing I was kind of just like detaching myself from my home life and you know I just couldn't deal with anything I felt like I had no control um and and my ex-husband just uh, he was so frustrated with me um it, it's really a shame I think after I got sick and I, and at first it was such a delayed response. Mm -hmm. Um, the emotional stuff, I just think he didn't know how to handle that. And mm. nobody could have, unfortunately, nobody could have prepared him for that or prepared me. I, you know, for the first year I seemed to be okay. No, I didn't go to therapy. You know, I was out of therapy when I first came home and that was probably a huge mistake. But here, that goes back to the importance of nobody once ever asked me during that whole time if I was adopted. Um, I, obviously, it, was, it came up in my medical history, but they were very concerned because they were aware of my depression and anxiety of how I was going to be when they brought me out of the coma and realized that I'd missed all this time with my son. And they put me on antidepressants again. But when I had this delayed response where I just kind of like, I just kind of just didn't acknowledge my feelings at all. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody took that as like, oh, she's okay. You know, um, and nobody ever once made the correlation of like, oh, well, she was adopted. Like that's a tr no, no social worker or the therapist that I spoke to in the rehab. Like it never came up. Hmm. And here... You know, almost nine years after the fact, I realized how significant it was because it's basically it was like reliving the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that separation um, from a person that I was supposed to generate a bond with and that had been connected to me for nine months. So that was just that 
I mean, it's just really strange because to experience that once in your life is a trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to literally experience the same exact thing with your own child is just like, but, and, but I had no control over it. I wasn't even awake to process it. So it's kind of like those few months were just like stolen from me again. Like that's how I relived it. It's not like I made the choice to like give him up mm-hmm. or to not be with him. So I had no opportunity to process that. It just happened to me. And then it's like, then after overcoming the physical stuff, it's like, okay, you're go home. Here's a baby now. <laughs> it mm. is just like, I don't even know how to. And unfortunately, it took a toll when it did. It did catch up with me. That's that's my only advice to people that uh, you sound very similar to me, the way you deal with things. And that's how you are probably very like highly functioning and successful is that you're able to just block that stuff out. But when something triggers you, which this illness, this catastrophic illness was a huge trigger um, it catches up with you. And that's where I think there needs to be some type of preventative measures as far as just awareness for adoptees, that if some event happens in their life, that maybe that's a factor that, that could, um, you know, be, maybe be an issue for them mm-hmm. in coping with things. Like, I, I definitely think that's something that needs to be addressed in the medical field. I also think you know, I've had it happen to me where I, I've gone in and out of therapy for half my life. And there were times when it was like, oh, okay, I'm starting to feel anxious again, but I, I don't need to go to therapy again right now. This is in my early 20s. I went to the doctor and he pushed an antidepressant on me that I ended up having like an adverse reaction to. Mm. Um, and, and that's another problem with where if it's not asked or taken into consideration, okay, maybe this person is experiencing anxiety because they need to see a therapist or work some issues out because they, they're adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you shouldn't just push a medication on them. Um, you know, I think it would be helpful. I think a lot of people have issues that probably go undiagnosed um, because they're not aware that they have a reason for it being an issue. I mean, nobody ever thought that was – nobody – I went to family counseling with my parents for my anxiety. It never, ever got brought up that I was adopted. I mean, how does that not come up mm-hmm. <laughs> when you think about it now? Because me being separated from my son was such a traumatic event, and that gets talked about. But really, you think about it, the same thing happened to me. Yeah. So how could that not be important? How can it be important for one person but not another? It's really not different. And it changes, too, depending on, I guess, the age. You know, like you were at a point where you were separated at a relatively young age. I was separated at 12. So in both cases, it's not the fact that one is better or worse, but it's more so that one is going to trigger a set of experiences that may not apply to someone who was separated as an infant. Or, Correct. you know, even down the road. So, like, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I do think that there um, needs there need to be studies um, done on something like this. But he, the other thing that I'm noticing throughout all of this is that it almost seems like in this particular field that a lot of the work is truly left up to us. And, oh, absolutely. You know, they're like, just like you said, you can look at... The medical field, that's a perfect example um, where you're not even being asked that question, but you are being asked a question about everything else, about who you are, your health, your parents, and everything else that makes you to that point. But you miss this quote-unquote simple thought of, okay, is this person even adopted? Have they been through another system besides a traditional family home? Right. And once you miss it, then that's where a lot of the things happen, and that's Honestly, one of the biggest reasons why we started Overcoming Odds was because of that. Was we, we did our research and we would go to different organizations that are doing work in this field and we would ask the questions, you know, how, how many of you have been adopted? How right. many of you have been through this experience? 
and it's something that you know I would love to ch challenge you to do one of um, whenever you come into a situation like that and you will just be blown away by the numbers I mean it's like 10% or even less than that of the people that are providing the services um, that have been through that also lived firsthand through that experience and it's not, right. not it's not to say that someone who has gone through um, an education that was textbook based and had you know practicals and things like that is unqualified to give you um, treatment but I do think that there's a level of understanding that will always be missing because they're not able to understand it from the emotional side of, right. of that, what you're going through. That's what I think that really I had that breakthrough after listening to Leslie's podcast because it was like safe for me to say, okay, she what she's saying is correct because this happened to her. Mm -hmm. So it's okay for me to believe that because she knows. Mm -hmm. Because I've experienced that with my all my medical stuff too where it's like, I can remember having a feeding tube and the nurse saying to me, I wanted it out. And I remember she, her saying to me, well, you have to agree to, you know, like drink so many liquids or this or that, you know, they give you like ensure and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. Like I said, I, I need this out to be able to, to drink more liquids because I can taste it. Like I could smell it. She's like, you can't taste it. You can't smell it. That's not possible. I'm like, and I, and I can, remember like saying to her looking at her like okay have you ever had one mm -hmm. and it's the same thing <laughs> it's it's um, true how do you know that mm -hmm. how do you know um so i guess i think that it's hard to trust especially a therapist when you're talking about these things especially things that are like relatively new observations mm -hmm. about like this you know adoption trauma when it coming from somebody that has not experienced that yep and you may be um, going through something that is new to you or new to other people so when you try and explain that to someone else who hasn't even i mean that hasn't even been published in the textbook or any right. other scholarly article it's going to be impossible for that person to understand what it is that right. you're going through and so you're going to be put in that same position where you came in you were looking for help and you weren't able to get it. Right. But feeling misunderstood is definitely a theme of my life. Um, and I can recall even in therapy, I, I don't know if it was you that said this or another one of your guests, like that, that feeling like frustrated, mm -hmm. like that your therapist isn't even under, like that you're getting nowhere. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I can, I certainly felt that um in sessions sometimes with various therapists um it's hard it, that's why i feel like this community is so important because while many of us aren't licensed therapists there's a lot of trust that comes with opening up to somebody that has the same feelings and has had the same experiences yes Comple um, it's completely agree with you yeah, it's like a, it's like you're able to trust like some. It's being like a member of a tribe, um, and I, and I I'm able to talk about these things now because I know that you know other people feel the same way, mm -hmm. and I'm not being judged for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think there's been times when I've felt even judged by therapists for having the feelings that I felt, you know, um, but. There, but that's my story. And just because it didn't happen to me the same way it happened to somebody else, it's still the same. It's still a trauma. It doesn't negate any of those feelings that I'm entitled to. And that's what I think is so important. It's like I think oftentimes adoptees are, are not made to feel like they're entitled to their feelings and that they have to, like, bury them. Um, and I think that just does so much damage. I, I love that fact because, well, for a lot of reasons, but one of them being is validation. I think right. in today we look we look for that, and we this happens beyond adoption. Once again, you know, if you look at all of the different networking groups or um, just groups in general that you're a part of, 
I think one of the first things that crosses people's minds is that validation. Is my story good enough to be a part right. of this group? Am I a good enough person? Do I have the same ethics and morals? Um, and so we, we look for that. And I, I do agree with you that especially in this community within adoption, that's very important for people to understand that their story is their story. That's already the validation. And that, you know, right. it goes outside of it once again. Your story of whoever you are, that or it's already validated. You don't have to prove right. anything else to the rest of the world. There are no questions you have to ask, so um, answer or ex exams to go through. It just it just is. It just is right. what it is. Yeah, and that's what comes along with self acceptance. That's exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like accepting your story that that's enough and that it doesn't need any further validation mm -hmm. that it's it's your story because it's yours and it happened to you and it didn't happen to anybody else um but that other people can relate to it in some way there's somebody out there that can and i think i've really realized that with this um you know project that you started mm -hmm. um it's just i, I have to say it is I think people are scared. I know even with my involvement with this, like I shared it on my personal page and I will when this podcast gets published, mm -hmm. but I have that fear of like from my friends and family that I don't talk about this with that. They're going to judge me. Mm -hmm. Like, why is she posting this? Why is she putting that out there? Mm -hmm. What does she want attention? Like there's still all those fears and I'm starting, I challenged myself to do this and be a part of this because I want to accept myself and not care yes. what other people think. Yep. Because it doesn't it's really irrelevant actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's that I think it's important to um notice that what you just brought up with that is at the end of the day you have to you know, I've always believed that you get to create the family or the support group that you've always wanted. There's nothing that bounds you that says, Okay, these are the people you have to interact with. These are the people you can speak about X, Y, and Z. This is the group that you can only talk about emotions. It's You get to decide that. You're the person right. that gets to decide that. And the other thing that I've noticed is that it doesn't really matter what age you get to. You still can make that decision. You can be 60. You can be in your 20s. Um, you still have that choice. And... The fact that you're noticing that this now and you are accepting other people, majority of which I'm assuming you probably have never met in person right? as part of your community, as part of your being, as part of your identity. And mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think that's how, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think that's how you live this human life. Yeah. Is that you ex I, I accept to, the people that I you want. I I have to say that the my illness and and because that happened to me and because I'm a part of support groups for um, ARD survivors and mm -hmm. ECMO survivors, that has really helped me um, to realize that because I'm on the flip side of that. There's people in these groups that maybe have only were in a coma for a week, mm -hmm. and it completely has impacted their life, you know, it, it's turned it completely upside down. I mean, there's no, you can't measure yourself to somebody else's experience. It's just still the same feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and I really learned that through there because it, again, I would read every once in a while I'll comment, but I would read people's posts and basically it's a group, the same thing. Like, um, this is happening to me now. Has anybody else experienced this? Like everybody tells their story where they're from. And I kind of just sit back and I, and I, you know, I don't hear somebody's really struggling and they maybe didn't even endure half of what I went through. And for whatever the reason, they're not able to get to this point of recovery that I was able to get to. So I hold back because I'm afraid that somebody's going to say, you know, what are you complaining about? Like you ran a marathon after this, like there's people that can't even ever work again. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like I've kind of like 
that's helped me realize that adoption and that part of my life and overcoming that, my issues with that, it's no different. Uh, it's really the same and you can't measure, can't judge somebody else's experience mm -hmm. by your own. Like we're all different and we all, you know, react to things the way we react to them, mm -hmm. the way we're designed to react to them and what, how we choose to react to them. And some things are harder for other people. Yep. Some things are easier for other people and that's okay. Like that's what I think the most important um, takeaway from all this is that it's a total safe place and that it's okay to have feelings mm -hmm. about something that's not really <laughs> talked Discuss. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Final thought for today's episode. And this is a question we ask all of our guests, as I'm sure you're aware of by now in a situation where odds are completely against you. What are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Um, <laughs> that to always have faith. I always, somehow, even when I've been in my darkest moments, I've managed to keep some faith that I am here for a reason and I'm on this journey for a reason and it's always managed to pull me through. I've always, when I feel like I've got nothing left in the tank, like that's always that belief um, has always um, pulled me through to just like get myself out of that dark place and going wherever I need to go. Mm -hmm. um, so, and just being determined, uh, you know, just persistent and determined. I, I think that persistence and determination are uh, the root of, everything that drives me. I just don't give up. Um, and acceptance, although while I've thought that it's been really hard for me, maybe I have been practicing it and just not realizing it because I don't think I could have ever moved forward from certain events that have happened in my life without just, you know, being persistent in trying to find the peace of mind that I want to have and creating the life that I want to have for my son and my family and, and knowing that I have the ability to make that happen. If I just keep at it and chip away at it every day mm -hmm. one, and believe one in myself small step I at a time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just want, to, and those were the types of things I want to push on to, you know, or not push on to my son, but, that I would like to um, share with him that he has the ability to keep going even when he doesn't feel like he has anything left. Mm -hmm. And that's physically, emotionally, um, that's just the biggest lesson I've learned. Just keep moving forward. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, I highly recommend that you subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes along with featured stand up and speak up stories and ways you can be involved with overcoming odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.